Great. So I guess it's my pleasure now to introduce uh, Dr. Mike Sag, who really needs no introduction. Um, he has multiple talents. I think in two years we'll maybe be looking at his paintings or music composition <laughs> or something as he uh, explores even new areas of, um, of interest. Um, but he's going to uh, go ahead and initiate the, the, the case uh, discussion and, um, keep, and keep the conversation going. To Mike, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. Um, so we've got about an hour, and I've got a number of cases. Um, let me tell you how I've organized this. Throughout the year, I'll get phone calls, or I'll be in clinic and bump into somebody, and they'll ask some question. Oftentimes, there isn't an answer. But the common questions, I just keep a log of. And then when I prepare for something like this, I take those questions and then create a stylized case. So it's not a real case. So you can say, well, what I, I disagree with that. Let it go. The point, the point is to get to some answer in a clinical context and, and to address these issues. So to help, um, when you see this way of organizing it, there'll be a question first and then the case. And that's kind of nice because it orients you to whether we're dealing with, you know, what sport we're playing in the arena. So you, when you start hearing the case, you're already oriented to what the question's going to be, so you're not trying to figure that out, and that makes things go smoother. And to help me, we have this uh, distinguished panel, a uh, number of whom you've already met, um, but uh, Dr. Connie Benson from University of California, San Diego is here, and Dr. David Wiles, formerly of the University of Colorado, uh, University of California, San Diego, now at Colorado, um, is, is with us as well, and you've already met um, Dr. Dueck and Dr. Ludkemeyer. Right, so, yeah. So here we go. Um, so the usual disclosures. Um, we're going to talk about a bunch of things. I, I could list every case, but I didn't. So there's going to be a lot of objectives that we'll get to. And we have an hour. So here's, here we'll just start right in. So it seems like we are now starting ARV therapy on just about everyone. What about starting treatment on a true elite controller? So here's a story. 30-year-old guy was diagnosed four years ago with HIV. He's been asymptomatic. His viral load's less than 50. His CD4 counts 870 and has been there uh, throughout the entire time, not dropping. His other labs are normal. B5701 is negative. Genotype from his DNA is wild type. And again, we checked the DNA to confirm he's, you know, as we say in this house, sure enough, infected. He has no prior medical history. He's okay to start therapy if you would. Uh, if you'd recommend it. So would you recommend that? Yes, no, maybe. Let's go ahead and vote. Got to wait for the little clock to appear. Do I do that? Hmm. There we go. So that's, there we go. There, we're on the clock. And music. Maestro. What happened? Oh, well. Well, we missed one. So we're going to be using television show theme songs uh, are going to be our company. Okay. So we've got a very uh, assertive audience in terms of treatment. Um, who, would, uh, who would take the opposite view? Anybody want, on the panel want to represent a reason perhaps not to treat this guy right now? Got 100% of the panel are going to treat, so I'll try to take it and then uh, let them 
flatten me down. So one reason is you could say, well, you don't know that there's really any de novo replication per se, and this is something in reality that we're shooting for when we get a functional cure, right? So you're talking about getting people who've been on antiretroviral therapy, do something to their immune system, vaccine, or something, immune modulator, you pull away the antiretroviral therapy and look for them to just sail along. And if that's good enough for functional cure, that should be good enough for this guy that you didn't have to go through all that. So that's an argument. Take it away, Danny. So you are, you are wrong. <laughs> so I'm, At least I, you didn't call me an ignorant slut. I, <laughs> I'm an intelligent slut. I, um, I, haven't, I haven't treated a patient for decades now, so I'm talking as a scientist. Um, an elite controller, you define them because you, you can't detect virus in their, in their blood. Right, but that, that's all dependent on how much blood you take and the sensitivity of your assay. And we've done a lot of studies on elite controllers, and you can always detect virus in their blood. You just use a lot of blood, and you have a very sensitive assay. The virus is in the lymph nodes. There's a lot of virus in the lymph nodes, and it is evolving, and you can do that from, and you know, we know that because we've sequenced it. So there's virus, there's virus in evolution, and that's enough for me to start someone. So else. the evolution implies that there's replication. Correct. Yeah. And an immune system response that it's evolving away from. Correct. Okay. Other thoughts? Connie. Oh, this is like, what's my line? You remember that? Uh-huh. So this, you just alluded to this. These are, these are data from your institution, right? Um, bottom line, this came from Peter Hunt from quite a while ago, but looking at uh, HIV negatives in terms of CD38 positive cells, which is signs of inflammation. Uh, and those who are HIV negative, you can see on the far left, and those who are non-controllers on the far right. And notice that the elite controllers are roughly about as active as those on antiretroviral therapy and in precise... Actually, they may be even more, have more activation. So that leads to downstream complications. Um, in the interest of time, I think we've made the points. Uh, one thing that, uh, in talking with uh, Peter and Steve Deeks and others um, who worked on this project, one thing that seems to be popping up, if you're really on the fence, is that you can look at CD4, CD8 ratio. And that's a pretty good sign. If you're on the fence, if that ratio is above one, you might be able to watch a little longer, despite Dr. Duak calling you um, an ignorant slut. Um, but, you, but if it's below 0.5, that's, that should be a trigger to go ahead and just do it. Um, yeah, people say, well, when do you stop? The answer is you don't. One final question just to the panel. What about functional cure? I mean, it, to me, this is a functional cure of sorts. This is what you'd be looking for. No? No, it's absolutely not a functional cure. If you looked at my definition right at the beginning, you want to get rid of the virus that is causing damage to you. And in the elite controllers, there is virus that is causing damage to them. So it's absolutely not a functional cure. It's at one end of the spectrum of disease. It's not a cure or even a functional cure. 
but how are you going to, what, how do you distinguish between this guy that I just described and somebody who had been through uh, a functional cure approach? Because the person who's been through a functional cure is not making infectious virus that is infecting new cells and can potentially transmit okay. virus to another how individual. Okay, how are you going to determine that? How do you know that? What metric are you going to use to there demonstrate? There are a whole host of assays, some better than others. They are constantly improving. Um, we may need to do, for example, lymph node biopsies to look in, in mm -hmm. there. But um, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. The, the, the best way is to take someone off therapy and see right. if, you, if virus comes back. Right. Chip? <laughs> it's already happened. There's already a press release. Okay, Sorry. Yeah. But it, it came from the White House, okay. not from me. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, but you, you see my point because the, the, my retort to you would be, okay, and this guy, if we ran those assays and saw that they read out like your functional cure, you would advocate not treating? So in other words, this guy, you ran your lymph node assay, you don't see the evolution. In this guy. But we would. We all do. What? Okay. Well, what if you didn't? But we do. We've okay. <laughs> the next case. We've looked at tons of elite controllers. What regimen should I initiate when I begin therapy? This is what's nice about being the moderator. Um, what, what should I start treatment with? So this is a 48-year-old guy recently diagnosed asymptomatic, viral loads 28,000, CD4 count 650, Everything's pretty much negative, including his B5701 and his wild type genotype, negative medical history on no other medicines, normal renal function, okay to start therapy. And right away you think to yourself, yeah, he made up this case, right? And virtually nobody's just like this, but we're, we're going to assume. I'm trying to take all the, the, the noise out of the, the case question. So with that in mind, what regimen would you choose? I'm going to give you a ch chance to look at this. There's a number of Fix those combination regimens, one pill once a day. There's a few that are two pills once a day. I might notice that at the bottom I put raltegravir number eight as once daily. That will be released within the month, probably. You'll hear about that. It just got approved by the European F uh, FDA equivalent. It's 1,200 milligrams, so that's two 600 milligrams once a day. So you don't have to worry about the afternoon. So assume that's available to you now. Um, let's go ahead and vote. Artemis Gordon. Sounds like a Western, doesn't it? Yeah, here we go. So, most people went with the, interestingly, TAP, uh, either FTC or 3TC with Dolutegravir. Um, others went with the Abacavir option, 48-year-old guy. So, Dr. Wiles, what, what do you, would you do here? I, I probably would have gone with uh, TAP. FTC and Dolutegravir are separate. I, I mean, I think I definitely would have used, thanks, Dean, an integrase-based regimen. Um, there's a lot of good choices now. I think, uh, you know, some things to consider are food restrictions or what the patient's lifestyle is like and schedule and things like that. You know, ropivirine's not a bad option. It's maybe a little less forgiving, so if I had any concerns about adherence, I might not go with that. But otherwise, that's certainly an option for this gent with the lower viral load. Okay. Annie, what about this Dolutegravir 3TC option? Mike. Right off the bat, and his viral load is low 
Okay, so let's say you did what everybody, what 35% said, and would you switch them over at that point, assuming they're... I really need a reason to do it. Okay. So I think it's a, you know, learn about what the hundred people and deciding that that's early data, and I think we need more, but if the times when I've gone off script okay. are when there yeah. are a lot more conversations happening. Yeah. Anybody want to back up or provide some support for Ropivering. Viral load's 28,000 with a fixed dose combination. Yeah. It's okay, right? It's 14%. There's nothing wrong with that choice. They're really outside of the uh, that bottom one with Dalyutegravir 3TC. They're, they're all reasonable choices. Um, anybody want to comment about number one? 5% of the audience went with the uh, artist formerly known as A. I can't say a triple. I'm not allowed to do that. Just no, just totally out. But you know, it was the bomb, right? I mean, it was it. It was. You know, 2007. We'll come back to that in a later case. Okay. Uh, any other thoughts from the audience? Anybody, any pushback? I think the point of showing this is that we have a lot of great options, right? A lot of great options. And they're going to get better still. And as you'll see from Dr. Benson, this afternoon, even better options seem to be in the offing down the road. Yes, sir. Uh huh. Everyone likes it. I thought infectious disease in general was conservative, and you like to use the oldest rather than the newest. Yeah, infectious disease generally is that way, except um, that that it seems to be there's a there's a tendency in HIV medicine to right about the time a drug's going to go off patent, suddenly it's shit, right? I mean, can I say that? Okay, we're among friends. I mean, suddenly it's no good. Any what used to be great in 2007 suddenly has warts. Uh, sequinavir, which wasn't a great drug, suddenly has a QTC problem. It, I did, you know, we all did studies on that. We never saw that in the studies, but it did. I'm not saying there's a conspiracy. We just tend to do that. But frankly, you talk to patients, we all do. There are more problems with tolerability with... Um, the fixed dose combination with the fovereigns. But you're right. It's just that it's a function of HIV medicine. Any other comments? No, I mean, the only thing you made me think of, you know, with dietary, I mean, it, it obviously is very well tolerated, but there are more reports coming out about possible CNS effects and depression stuff and things like yeah. that. So, I mean, not, no drug's perfect, but I think, you know, compared to, say, the fovereigns, which you asked about, I, I mean, I think there are clearly concerns with that regimen. So, right. um, why not go with the newer and better? Yeah. Yeah. It was the only regimen that had the replaced uh, Tenovir or F, you know, um, TAF with that. So could you comment on that about the pros and cons? Is there a con to an abacavir at that viral load? Um, technically, no. It should work well, very well. And it, will, uh, it won't have any more side effects, per se. The concern is mostly with this... Um, thought about cardiovascular trouble in a 48-year-old, but we're going to get to that in a later case, but let's bookmark that. But, uh, you know, what, almost 30% went for that, and it's a fine choice. I can just make one other small comment, which I've been struck by how much some of my patients care about pill size, so that combination, mm. Trimec, is big, and I, that's not something I really think about, but I've had patients choose two small pills over one big pill, and they really care about it, and unless I'd sat down and said, this is a big pill and showed it to them. Now I actually show them the pill 
And I've had people say, I'm not taking that. I want two small pills. Do other people find that size matters? <laughs> I, I, I really, I knew I was setting it's myself not up. the length of the pill. Oh, I see. <laughs> Just saying. But you're right. It, and, and I think the data show that the biggest drawback, I think, for adherence is twice daily versus once daily. Mm -hmm. And whether it's one or two pills, some folks might prefer taking two smaller pills, right? than one big honker, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's change this up a bit. Same exact story, except now the viral load on baseline is 760,000, right? And the CD4 counts 21. So is there something different? We got the same kind of choices. I took out, the, obviously, the value take over 3TC. I don't think anybody would even think to do that even close. But the rest of them are more or less the same. Um, let's go ahead and vote. Everybody knows that's a pantheon. Who was the uh, composer who wrote it? All right, we got an older audience. That's good. <laughs> Later, we've got Peter Gunn coming. Uh, did you dig deep? Let's see. All right, things did change. Uh, many more people like that two small pill approach that Annie suggested, uh, but yet. Abacavir, 3TC, Dalutegavir still in the in the game. Um, thoughts from the panel? Connie, any uh, personal preference there? Well, I think the well Abacavir, 3TC, and Dalutegavir is an excellent regimen under most circumstances. There are data, maybe not data necessarily from the Dalutegavir trials, but certainly an abundance of data suggesting that Abacavir doesn't perform as well in people with very high viral loads. So that might be a theoretical reason to avoid that combination. Right. And the same is true with ralpivirine. So yeah, those so two would be out. Yeah, I, I think, think. There, it's rare that in these there's going to be a sort of a wrong choice. I think the ralpivirine choice in this case is wrong. Mm -hmm. The, the dalutegravir abacavir, the data to date, and it's not overwhelming numbers, shows that that's the exception. Mm -hmm. When you pair abacavir with dalutegravir, the viral load doesn't seem to matter in terms of that. You're still getting 90 plus percent at intent to treat at 48 weeks. Um, so I think it's it's okay. There may be other reasons. Um, but, but generally speaking, again, like we said before, all these are pretty decent choices. Any other comments from the panel? Audience, yes? Uh-huh. Right, w just in general? Well, okay, so I was alluding to that earlier that it doesn't seem to be as high an impact on compliance if one versus two pills, if they're once a day. And like, like Annie was just saying, size may matter here. So if you have a choice of a one large single pill a day versus two small pills, a lot of patients prefer two small. So it, it's, really a, it's really an issue uh, for it's a judgment, but twice a day is really where the difference comes into play. Yes, ma'am. Ah, uh-huh. Copays. Any of your patients have copays? You can give a little certificate. I'm just curious about the once a day option. That's not something I've. Are people really starting naive patients on that in clinical practice? They, they, yes, not yet. So the once a day is not available here yet. 
Okay. So what I was saying at the beginning, and, and you might have missed that, that probably in the next several weeks, uh, there's going to be two 600 milligrams or Alpegravir, so it'll be 1,200 milligrams once a day with another pill. So it'll be three tablets. Right. That's a three pill once a day. So the data so far indicates that it would work and, and perhaps, you know, certainly work in this case, even with the higher viral load, but with the pills there, you may be wanting to lean towards something else. The, the way you might use it is where you're worried about drug-drug interactions because raltegravir, out of all the integrase inhibitors, has the cleanest because it's mostly glucuronidase. Renal, yep. They liked it. Uh-huh. Right. That's a question. If you were going to start the medications um, without your genotype back yet, yep. would you be okay with just a potent three drug regimen? Chip, what do you think? Uh, I, I probably would actually in this case. Um, you know, if, with the low with with an integrase inhibitor is, is one of my uh, drugs, but uh, I think your point's one well taken. Yeah, uh, one thing that we have uh, were these data at Croy, I forget, but about the integrase inhibitors being associated with a little bit more iris. Is that a Croy? Again, to that point, it was in less than 200 as they were on an integrase, but the rates overall were pretty low. But the time when I think about that is if someone already has a known opportunistic infection and I'm worried about it, like for example, if they, crypto is another story, but if they have TB or MAC, then I might stick with a, a, a PI and then switch them down, down the road. But, hmm. but to your point with the genotype, I wouldn't not start them. I'd pick something and put them on it. Sometimes I see people waiting, yeah. uh, and, and I wouldn't do that. I'd come up with your best guess and then just modify. So in this case, a, uh, an integrase inhibitor is a good choice. Boosted darunavir would be a good choice as far as barrier to resistance. Um, I think pe most people would lean towards dolutegravir among the integrase inhibitors to start and maybe adjust if you want to or not. Um, Connie's going to tell you about some other options for new integrase inhibitors, in particular Bictegravir that you'll hear about. Um, so there, there'll be drugs like that. Chip? The only thing I had with this guy is he clearly was sick for a while and deferred coming in until he was symptomatic with a really low CD4 cell count. So if you decide to wait uh, while you wait for a genotype, uh, just make sure you have uh, a tracker on him. <laughs> the, the other thing, the, hypothetically, and I, I don't know that there's proof for this idea, but one of the reasons why it's been proposed that iris happens is that, especially in the context of high viral load, um, that the virus itself is, um, is sort of interfering with the immune response. And when you take the virus away, especially very quickly, what you do with an integrase inhibitor, then the immune system tends to, for lack of a better word, wake up. And then if there's something going on, you get this exuberant immune response uh, that you that was suppressed previously. The things in particular to really watch for in this guy is PML, because he could show up six weeks after treatment with a seizure or some altered mental status, and that could it could be an iris reaction to something that was there but wasn't symptomatic, or maybe just had some slowness, uh, stroke-like picture. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of ironic, um, but yes, he was going to get PML anyway because he already had it, but it just came out more dramatically as he got treated, and you're right, antiretroviral therapy is there. A lot of people, there's controversy about this. When that happens, might give a short course of steroids 
in the process. It's still controversial about sidofovir. Um, most of the randomized trials did not show any benefit, but I'll say that if you look carefully at those, there wasn't great management of the sidofovir toxicity with proper use of probenicid and saline prior to, uh, prior to uh, giving the drug. So I, I think that might still be on the table, and it wouldn't be terribly wrong if you did that. But um, that, you're right. So that's the treatment, and you just keep plowing ahead and hope that they pull through it. Okay. These are the guidelines from the ISUSA. You'll notice that it's mostly um, uh, integrase inhibitors here uh, that's recommended. I'll, I'll show this slide mostly to point out that alternative regimens are not bad regimens. They're alternative. That's okay. It's up to you to decide what to use. It's not like you're doing something wrong. Now, there are not recommended regimens. That would not be good. But alternative regimens are okay. And I just finished with this observation. This came from Andrew Hill in Great Britain who um, makes a point of studying cost. This is annual cost, one year, sub-Saharan Africa for these regimens. Mm. Mm. No comment needed. So the reason I also bring that up, just we don't have time to go into great detail on this, but one of the questions that will come up is, Will cost ever become a factor in what we choose? Right now, we've sort of been allowed to do what we think is right. At Kaiser, I know there's great discussion about, you know, finding the right regimens that are most cost-effective and all that. Um, and that's a health system that, in my opinion, operates the right way with capitated costs and people working together as a team to deliver care in a way that's not fee-for-service driven. And uh, hopefully, that's the future editorializing. Um, a little bit, but it may be that cost, it may be that cost comes into play, not next year, but in future years. So this is a common question. You got a new guy on treatment, you mentioned about resistance, he has a 194V at baseline. So this happens to be a woman, newly diagnosed, uh, same viral load CD4 count, same story as before, except that she's not pregnant and she doesn't plan to become pregnant, and she's okay to start therapy and she's got an M184V. So does that change what you'd recommend for her? Viral load 28,000, CD4 count 600 something. Um, go ahead and vote. They're coming to rescue Danny. California Highway Patrol. It's a California TV show. I thought, yeah, that's appropriate. All right. So, nobody went for Dietegovir 3TC. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Sophisticated audience. That's one where you're just basically giving monotherapy. Um, comment from the panel on this? David? Um, I mean, I think the, the audience navigated this pretty well. I, you know, we don't know about the RAL once daily, but certainly the SwitchMorph studies, you know, suggested that pre-existing exposure or M184V was not good for that regimen, potentially. Um, I, I think you just naturally would assume the same thing as rolpivirine. Um, and then conversely, some of the switch studies that have looked at dolutegravir-based regimens suggest even in the presence of nuke resistance M184Vs, they still do very well. So I think mm -hmm. I would probably shift to a dolutegravir-based regimen. From there, I don't think 
you're probably really wrong with the nukes you pick, but I'd include them. Yeah, so the abacavir really is the question here. So yeah. answer two. Yeah, two would not. Right. Yeah. Abacavir, you've lost most you of 3TC, and you've got a little bit of a hit on abacavir. You'd probably get away with it, I would think, but it's it's something that you probably want to choose better. And the other point to make is that in a lot of um, in vitro studies, with a 184V only, uh, sometimes tenofovir becomes uh, hypersusceptible. The virus becomes hypersusceptible to tenofovir, so that should make up for some of the sins of loss of the others. That's the point. I think everyone got that. Okay, this is a really common question. Um, should I trip from? Should I switch from the drug formerly known as A, fixed dose combination? who's been on it for 10 years. Anybody had that question come up in their clinic? Not everybody, right? So let's see what we do here. This is a 45-year-old woman diagnosed 10 years ago. She gets referred to you, so she's coming to you on this regimen. And you find out that her viral load at baseline was 36,150 CD4 cells. In 2007, uh, she got treated with a tripla, and viral load went down. CD4 count's been rising and stable and doing well, and she feels great, and you, you interrogate her till the cows come home. You ask her if she's got headaches, if she's depressed, if she drives backwards on the freeway. Nothing sort of comes up as, as a red flag. Um, and so do you pull sort of a Herbert Walker Bush and knock on a debt, change wouldn't be prudent, or are you going to do uh, some of these switches? Go ahead and vote. More modern. Game of Shame. 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 Okay. <laughs> All right. Shame if you changed. Shame if you didn't. What do you think, guys? Danny? Oh, you would. So I don't treat because she's got the virus load. She can transmit bad, right? It, it would be. She's got no virus. She's what? undetectable. Oh, I thought she had thirty-six thousand. No, at the beginning and it went down. That was before she started. So now she's undetectable. She's been undetectable for ten years. Leave it then. All right. <laughs> Perfect. So, <Great>. Connie. <laughs> uh, so I think you made the point after. You know, a lot of questioning that she has no symptoms. Swears. Swears she has no symptoms. Yeah. And one of the, I think, experiences many people have had is when you, someone who swears they have no symptoms at all on efavirenz, you take them off of efavirenz and suddenly they realize, well, I actually feel a little bit better than I did. Yeah. I'm thinking a little more clearly and I'm uh, more energized. And so I think what we consider to be lack of symptoms may not always be recognized, particularly when somebody was started 10 years ago, because 10 years ago, this was the best regimen. They're very committed to that regimen. They're obviously fully suppressed. They don't want to have symptoms on that regimen, but when they have an excellent alternative to switch to and they switch, they suddenly notice that they actually did have subtle symptoms associated perhaps with the efavirenz. And I still have an ongoing discomfort with the sort of building body of data about efavirenz-associated suicidality. And uh -huh. obviously that doesn't apply to this patient, yep. but it's clear that there's still an ongoing rate 
however that may come across in particular patient populations, of adverse CNS effects right. of efavirenz therapy. So I wouldn't change for a virologic reason necessarily, yep. but maybe for other quality of life reasons. The yep. other thing we, I, I was in the Washington meeting just earlier this week and Mike presented hmm, somewhat similar cases. And <laughs> the same case. One of the points that uh, I thought about at the time but we didn't make is that there is a, a small proportion of individuals who have lipid abnormalities with efavirenz, and so depend, maybe not applicable to this case either, but maybe another sort of soft reason to switch uh -huh. to a non-lipid uh, forming or lipid-associated uh, regimen. Any other comments or thoughts? Danny, Mike, you're just I angry and you're going to leave. It's not because I have an Uber to catch it, because oh. you're an ignorant slave. <laughs> 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 Thank you. You may... Just when I tell you to go, you leave me. <laughs> um, other thoughts, Annie? And I think the tenofovir, the TDF here is also a consideration. You know, she's not uh -huh. going to feel that, the, the, the bone toxicity from TDF. So, and so if you're looking at 20 more years on this, she's going into perimenopause. Right. You know, it's, it's a consideration. So this begs the question. It's, it's the audience. I see a lot of affirmative nods in the audience. Does that mean as a policy we just take everyone and switch them off? Yes. I'm going to say one thing. If, if she's been undetectable for 10 years, uh -huh. I'd ask her how, I'd really want to know one, maybe her recall history and then how she takes the medication. Because it's not unusual, they, over 10 years, they become divergent. And it's like, I take it four times a week. Uh -huh. I take it, you know, they, they do different things. They don't take it every day. So I have to, I have to be concerned. I have actually have one woman who takes a triple once a week. Yep. Right. But, you know, so I'd, I'd, I'd want to know their, well, their adherence. In fairness, there could be a pharmacologic backup to her doing this. So remember that efavirenz is metabolized by 2D6, CYP2D6. And there are some people naturally who have low levels of that. So the drug builds up. And that's the people who in the studies came off very quickly for pretty bad intolerance. And they just were out. Um, it's, it's a higher prevalence of that um, isoenzyme being low uh, among minority, among black population. But in this woman's case, maybe she's a slow metabolizer and she just started futzing around and realized, hey, if I take this full dose, I'm feeling wag, you know, wigged out. If I skip a day, I do better. If I skip two days, I do better. So maybe she's adjusted, but you're right to be concerned. Uh, but I think that could be an explanation. Uh, in interestingly, in sub-Saharan Africa and other places, they're exploring a 400 milligram Favarin's dose with the idea to create fewer side effects and improve tolerability. And if you think back to the original days of the studies for DMT-006, the dose finding was more of a, it was a crapshoot. And they picked the higher dose because they didn't want to see failure. Uh, and it, you don't see much failure, you see a lot more toxicity. Other thoughts, Chip? No, I mean, we went through a wasted how many millions of dollars by the Gates Foundation look at half-dose D4T. It's time just to move to better drugs. Yeah. You know. So in your in the clinic, do you, is there a policy at, at your San Diego, uh, is it Owen Clinic? Uh, do you all uh, routinely just switch people or you take it up uh, case by case? There is no policy. It's not routine, but I would say the uh, our group 
yeah. does pretty much what you all have described. A right. good proportion of them would have switched the patient off for and, and all may, of the reasons and, that we talked about. And it may about. be that this is the type of person in a different system, like at Kaiser or something, you'd say, well, if we've got a generic and they're doing okay, maybe we should continue. Yeah, I mean, I just want to maybe turn the conversation a little bit to us as the providers. And I had the feeling, because, you know, I think, A, she's not asked for a change. Mm -hmm. She's maybe had a relationship with someone for 10 years and has come to you as a new patient because of a change in, their, in her pharmacy benefits or something. And I had the feeling that at least among some of us, and, and I'm not casting aspersions to anyone, there's a tendency to think that we need to prove ourselves mm. to every new patient by recommending something different. Um, and I think we need to be careful about that. Or who are we treating? Yeah. I mean, all those rationales that were discussed were we, excellent. Yeah. But she, she needs to build faith in faith you. In right. And some of that it, is to actually yeah. show that we're part of a system that actually, um, you know, we work together in a right. way. Right. So I would call that general contractor syndrome. Yeah. You know what I mean by that? The, the, the next general contractor you have, who did this? <laughs> you know, whoever did the last job was terrible. They can fix it, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, good point. Oh, yes, please. So people who stop abavirans then realize they're feeling better, but then people who go on new drugs, even placebo, feel worse. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all this is at play. It, it, I brought it up not to say I have an answer. I wanted to generate a discussion, which we did. So it, it's a common problem, or not problem, issue, and I think we all address it in our own way. I guess my point is that as long as what you're thinking through is rational and uh, you're talking with the patient, making a decision together, I think that's okay. But most people are leaning towards switching off at this point. All right, here's, a, here's an important uh, scenario. You guys have a lot of experience with PrEP. This is like the home of PrEP, the Bay Area. Okay, here we go. Whoops. So this is a 45-year-old guy who makes an appointment to see you. He's seronegative for HIV, not infected. He's been... His partner of 17 years is HIV infected and has been fully suppressed for every one of those 17 years, doing well. And he comes to you, the 45-year-old guy, because he wants to explore the possibility of him starting PrEP. And you ask questions, and he denies any partners outside of his relationship, and he does, he's pretty confident his partner doesn't have outside the relationship. Uh, but so here he is, he's sitting in front of you, and he asks for it. Um, whoops. At this point, you would prescribe PrEP, not prescribe PrEP, or you're not really sure what to do. Let's go ahead and vote. Yeah, I started the clock a little early on that. All right, so we got two-thirds of the audience going for it. I will tell you this answer changes where I am, you know, where this case gets presented. This is on the higher side of prescribing. Annie, yeah. what would you do here? You ever had that request before? Yes. No. I know, I know. Say Shocking. it ain't so. So obviously it has to you feel better that the partner is suppressed. He's suppressed now right? And mm -hmm. things change. And people who are the greatest patients in the world have their pharmacy screw up and have mm -hmm. life get in the way and they, the plane lost their meds. So it, this is a little bit of a belt and suspenders. Um, I think the belt is that the, his viral load suppressed and there's very little transmission if the viral load stays suppressed. 
Yeah. But you have to talk to him about taking a medicine for a disease that he doesn't have and how comfortable he feels about that. Okay, but let's, let's assume that that's not going on. So is there any other reason why you might prescribe? Well, who else does he have sex with? And that, you know, I, I again, people aren't having sex with other people until they do have sex with other people. And, <laughs> I, you know, I just have that conversation with them because sometimes the discussion I have now is very different from later and when people come in with discordant STDs and the whole thing. So this really is a very personal decision with the yeah. partner. It's not a situation where I say, Yo, you, look, you really need to take PrEP. I'm, I'm very worried about you. This is like a, hey, th these, are the, these are the risks, these are the benefits. Uh -huh. and, how yep. do you feel about it? Connie? Well, I'll give the same answer I gave earlier this week, and I, I think I'm always struck by uh, what's really going on behind the scenes when someone comes in and asks for PrEP. So you've asked all the right questions, and he says they're monogamous, both of them, but why is he asking for PrEP? He's obviously worried about something. And if... It, if his worry is just he's heard a lot about it, you can reassure him. If mm -hmm. he's worried because of some of the things Annie says, then maybe he's a good candidate for PrEP. Yeah. And if he's worried because he's not really sure that his partner's monogamous or that there isn't some outside influence on the relationship, then again, he may yeah. be a good candidate for PrEP. So I kind of listen to the patient and I think yeah. you might delve into some of the reasons why he's requesting it a little yeah. bit more but if he's requesting it and he's committed to following what needs to be done for prep, he's obviously got right. a reason for requesting so, it, and I wouldn't talk him out of it. Right, so um, it, it's a conundrum, but I, I've been convinced, I, I've shown this question a lot, and I have to say at the beginning, I was when I wrote this question, I was thinking there's no biologic reason, assuming all these conditions are holding, for him to really be on prep. They don't necessarily need belt and suspenders is where I was starting with this. And then it became clear in talking to a lot of different audiences that the fact that he came in and asked for it, there's something going on. So my conclusion at this point, see if you agree, is to say I could spend time delving in, but I probably it's probably a waste of time. I will say, look, assuming, I'm going to give you a fact, and then I want you to tell me what you'd like us to do. The fact is that if your partner continues taking his medicine regularly and his viral load stays suppressed, he will not, in all likelihood, uh, all parameters, not transmit the virus to you. Now, with that out there, do you want PrEP? And then they don't have to divulge anything. And if they say yes, there you go. You write the prescription, and we're done. Uh, and if they say, no, that reassured me, uh, then you can move on that way. But more times than not, I think it's, you know, uh, there's some ulterior motive that they may not feel comfortable telling you because you might be the, the doctor for that patient, right? And it's a little bit of a conflict. Okay. So yeah. Yeah, real quickly, I th there's, not a, there's not a great biologic reason. There's some, some guesses as to why PATH might not work because of penetration in the mucosal sites, but there are no data yet for PATH. They're working on it. And there's other things coming along that could be even better, longer acting, whatever. Um, I, I thought that um, TDF uh, got poorly absorbed, so it had higher concentrations in the rectum, which might be protective. Um, I, I don't know those data. Uh, anybody? I, I think that here's, the, here's at least the way I'm thinking about it, but I could be wrong, so I wouldn't take this very far. But to me, that what we're trying to do is prevent de novo replication of HIV. 
that happens inside of cells. And the cells in the body are going to get higher TDF phosphate. They're going to get the higher active drug on tap than they will with TDF at 25 milligrams, right? And so that's the thought. But other people are saying, well, you want it in the tissue itself, and that debate hasn't been resolved. I think that's, that's actually cell-type specific, the uh, uptake. So it's still an open question about intracellular. Whether it's monocytes or whether, yeah. And, and so I think that's the reason studies need to be done. Yeah. Uh, if you were asking about, TAF, about TDF getting to the rectum through the stool, yeah. doesn't help you there. It helps you inside the cells that the virus is trying to infect. And, and that's what's being resolved. I mean, we can take a, a vote and people's guess. Uh, the other thing to remember about PrEP is that uh, PrEP is not just the pill, but it's the start of an engagement, mm -hmm. because then you're able to have an opportunity to talk to that person, develop it over time, and then you can figure out, maybe you want to be on PrEP now, and then maybe after three months, six months, you may decide, okay, right. we know each other well enough, and now you don't need to do it. But then you've had a real chance to engage with that person over a longer period That's of time. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. If, if they're currently using condoms, would you proactively suggest that they don't have to? <laughs> I would say if they're not active outside their relationship, they shouldn't necessarily need to use condoms. But that's the if, right? Syphilis is what we worry. I mean, it's rampant everywhere. I heard it was here. You know, you saw it's big in the Bay Area. It's, it's enormously, it's an enormous problem in Alabama. Huge. Okay. I'm going to skip this case. All right. Getting back to Ibaka before we talk about this. So, this is, this is a convoluted scenario, but it's to make a point. Should you stop abacavir in a patient with coronary artery disease? Here's the story. 59-year-old man was started on ARV therapy years ago. He's had wild-type virus, and you took care of him up to four years ago, and then he left, went somewhere else, and now he's back in your practice. All right. He's currently on something that, that uh, was started elsewhere, uh, abacavir 3TC dietegavir fixed dose. His viral load has been persistently undetectable. His CD4 count has been hovering. And the key thing is at the bottom. Four months ago, he had a heart attack. Okay? But all the regimen stayed the same. And, and before the heart attack, his cholesterol was as you see, and his creatinine clearance was as you see. And he's a smoker and he's a diabetic. But since the heart attack, He's been added a statin, a aspirin, and a beta blocker, like you're supposed to. Blood pressure is controlled. Um, but he remains on the dietegavir, abacavir, 3TC. So, with that knowledge, he's now back with you. Would you continue the current therapy? Would you switch his abacavir to something else? Uh, or uh, I'm not sure why you do number three, but throw that out there. Give him Darunavir because you just saw David that Darunavir increases the risk of uh, <laughs> heart disease. You really don't like this guy or some other option. <laughs> this the plane? Okay. Fantasy Island. Yeah. Let's see. So most people would change. So this is like Carrington. Would you rather fight or switch? Um, 
Well, if you're smoking keratin, you should. You should probably quit. <laughs> Go ahead, Connie. Um, well, since I know you are planning to make the points already, that the relationship between abacavir and risk of cardiovascular events is, I think, still a controversial one. There is a huge body of data from observational databases and studies suggesting that there is a risk of an increased risk of current therapy with abacavir and cardiovascular disease events, although there's an also growing body of data from all of the randomized clinical trials showing no relationship. So the potential biases of observational databases versus randomized clinical trials come into play, but usually the randomized clinical trials were of younger populations. Yeah. So I think it's still a debatable point, and we could probably debate it forever, and we'll never have a conclusion to the discussion. So I think there are plenty of options available to this gentleman. I would concentrate on on dealing with some of the traditional risk factors for cardiovascular disease more intensively, but if there's another option to switch to, I would probably switch this gentleman to another regimen. Annie? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that if a back of ear is playing a role, so one thing is that because it's current and not former, it's been postulated that maybe this is platelet-mediated, mm -hmm. and in many of those studies, they didn't look at what aspirin, because it was observational, so now he's on an aspirin, and so if, asp if it is platelet-mediated and he's on an aspirin, you may have mitigated that risk. That being said, he's the one who has another heart attack, and you don't, you don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I think about this, but I think if, it's, if it is a back of ear, it's really on the margin. Um, so I haven't tended to go sort of crazy on this. I think the question is, what are your risks with TAF, and are you comfortable going down that road? Um, and I think TAF is probably better than TDF in terms of renal toxicity, but we don't know that it's no toxicity, so it's, it's less poison, maybe not no poison. <laughs> and so you showed me that he um, is a creatinine clearance of 80, but he's a diabetic, so I mm -hmm. probably feel okay with this, but if you really ramped it up and said his, you know, his creatinine clearance was 30, yeah. then you really run into some difficulties, and I might be swayed to leave him on, on the abacavir. Right. So you, you picked up on the point I was trying to make in the case, and that is, uh, Connie nicely described the, the story in terms of the clinical trials versus the cohort data and accurately reflected that, and that's what's created some question mark about it. And, you know, a lot of us scratched our head and said, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would that be? Especially while you're on it, you go off, and that risk seems to go away. And then there was a basic science assessment that showed that abacavir does lead to some degree of platelet aggregation that might explain the increased risk, even though it's a relative risk. It's not an absolute huge thing. It's just partial. Um, and so you say, okay, I, now I get it, so maybe I would take him off if he were at risk. But now he's on aspirin. So what does that do? Home. I mean, that's the point. So to me, for this guy, I would focus hot and heavy on the smoking. Because that's the one thing for sure is going to get him in big trouble. Right. You've already got the blood pressure. You can't change his diabetes. You try to control it. But the smoking is the number one, two, three, four, five, six, ten. And we're dancing on the head of a pen a little bit around changing his ARV regimen. So just prioritizing, I think that was the point. Yeah. So are you wrong to switch? No. Are you right to continue? Yeah, sort of. I mean, you can have the conversation with the patient. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can do that, right? 
The only other piece that I'd add there, though, is the one thing that is really bad for him is being viremic. So sometimes I try to do my best. I think I'm really helping people, and then it gets screwed up, and they end up viremic because the pharmacy screwed up, or they didn't understand it, or yeah. whatever happens. And so, I, you know, maybe my patients are seeing some faces, but my, you do not want him viremic. So right. sometimes keeping with what you're on and maximizing the other uh, uh, medicines, particularly if someone's having trouble with change in their life, I've become very, uh, I've been burned a number of times. Right. So th I wanted to make this point about observational data, and those of you who know me know that I've been a proponent of observational data, but they do have problems in the sense that sometimes um, what's in the chart is not correct. So this is a study out of Scenix where they had adjudication of all the myocardial infarctions that were reported, and they found that out of the first 1,100 MIs, that a good portion of them were not truly MIs after looking at, you know, blinded results going to cardiologists, that they were probably entered into the note by a house officer or something as rule out, but you can't put rule out in an EMR, you've got to put MI. And if you don't bother to change that on discharge, MI stays in the system and they've had a heart attack whether they did or not. So I forget the exact number, but it was like 30% or so that really weren't MIs. But then among those that were for sure MIs, um, they were about 50-50 between these two, two types. So type one is what we think about, right? That's traditional plaque, rupture, blockage, heart attack. But then 50% were type two, which means either supply and demand mismatch, like in shock or sepsis, or vasospasm. You ever had a patient who's done crystal meth? No. I mean, no. it happens, no. right, or coke, right? So those are younger people, typically, and they, come, they have a heart attack from this, and that, that I'm not sure a Bacavir would change, right? <laughs> so that, that's, all, that's the only point. So we need to take, so there's two, two points here. One is that the, the ran, randomized trials are better in a way because they have control, but they don't follow for long enough for the, for the long-term outcome. The cohorts are great for long-term outcomes, but you gotta look at it a little bit with a careful eye to know who the investigators were and what, how they went about documenting the outcomes. All right, here's another question that comes up. We've got two more I'll do and then we'll quit. So, have somebody with low-level detectable virus kind of persistently identified. So you get referred a guy uh, and he's diagnosed 18 years ago. His original viral load was almost a million and his original CD4 count was 70. His CD4 count now is 500 range, but he really never goes below 20. He's never above 100, but he's never below 20. It's kind of smoldering. Anybody have a case like that? Yeah, we all do, right? And it doesn't matter what he was treated on necessarily, but now he's on um, some kind of cockamamie regimen that you can call it, Valutegravir, Darunavir, and 3TC. I mean, it may be that Valutegravir, in our clinic, they're calling it DMD. There's a lot of people starting people on that. I'm kind of going, hmm, really? Remember the Raltegravir story with Darunavir? But data need to report that. But that's what he's on. So here you go. And so would you change his therapy because he's got this persistent level of viremia? Go ahead and vote. <laughs> Poor Bill. Probably not a good one. Poor Bill. You know that expression, by Felicia? Anyway, sorry. Lame. 
So, most people would not change him. Uh, anybody on the panel would try to change his therapy because of this persistent diremia? Chip. One thing you could do would be to uh, get a um, DNA resistance pheno uh, genotype and okay. get a little more data to decide uh, whether he needs this crazy regimen. Right. Um, and then, I guess, um, and sure, and so you could switch if you saw there was some resistance there. Or not. Or not. Right. right. Let's say you did that and there's no resistance to the regimen. Or any regimen. Or any regimen, yeah. Yeah, then you sounds like you're having some trouble somebody who's not as adherent as you yeah. think he is. Could be that. And uh, so that's, I'd have a discussion about that. And then right. probably try to get him on a regimen that um, would be less likely to have any side effects at all. Right. Uh, and would be as forgiving as possible. Yep. So that's the direction I'd probably go um, under those circumstances. Yeah. Other thoughts? I, I mean, I think that's about right. I, I would assume he probably has resistance. I don't even know if I would bother to try to do a DNA, you know, with all the, I'd assume like he has an MYA4V or something like that. Right. Um, but I agree with what Chip said. I, if this guy's been persistently low-level positive on all these different regimens, I would assume it's an adherence yeah. issue. Well, there, there, are some, there are some data that showing some other people have gone and taken this and said, well, what if we intensify yeah. briefly, throw an extra powerful drug that works, whatever, and more often than not, it doesn't change. Right, and that's a different scenario where, because this guy high, had high viral load baseline well, year, years ago, um, typically viral load is a directly related to the number of cells in the body producing the virus at that moment in time. So it means he's got a large reservoir, and one of the possibilities is that you're never going to get him less than 20 because he's got a reservoir that's spitting out virus enough over time without necessarily having de novo replication. And part of the reason I might think that's a play here, because if he were having some smoldering replication through interference or other things, it should start creeping up and you'd see resistance emerging. And uh, so it, it's a complicated situation. I just raised it because I think all the points made are valid. It's just you've got to work through it some. I think there were some, some great suggestions on how to do that. For, yeah. And I used to do that because it was a cheap way to look at what might be going on. Uh -huh. Because if this person's CD8 you know, ratio is dropping despite a relatively stable appearing CD4 and low viral load, I would probably be more concerned about you know, this immune reactivation. And I don't know, is there any data that supports that? Of course, because it's, it's not any special test. Yeah, there, well, there are, there are data that show in most every study of some bad outcome, heart attacks, cancer, uh, a low CD4 to CD8 ratio is often a predictor. Um, but the question then becomes, can you do anything about that? And let's take a situation not like this, but that somebody's been persistently less than 20. I don't know that there's much you can do except, you know, say, well, I've got to watch this guy a little bit more carefully for a bad outcome. Um, and in here, you've got some more to work with and some things to think about. I just raised it because it, it's a common question that we get, and it's this, the answer isn't straightforward or simple. Uh, so there is some work in, to do and some thinking. All right, this will be my last case. So what regimen should I use as initial therapy in a pregnant patient? So this, whoop, this is a woman who comes in, newly diagnosed, um, two and a half months pregnant, got tested by her OB. Um, viral load remarkably is the same as that initial case. I don't know how that happened. Um, 
and uh, all the other labs are negative. Uh, this is her first pregnancy, and she's eager to start treatment. So what regimen would you choose? And here are your options. I'll let you look at them. They're pretty much the same as we had at the beginning. Let's go ahead and vote. Yeah. Surgeon in the original movie. Remember Spear Chucker Jones? Yeah, the winger they brought in for the football game? Yeah. I've got some plays. Um, okay. Whoa. All right. So I, I, don't, I didn't want to bias you ahead of time, but technically there are wrong answers here. Okay? And technically, most of you went for the wrong answers. Um, so in the interest of time, we're, we're hitting the red zone. Uh, I'll just say what the issues are. So far, there are no, there's not sufficient safety data for either calf or dolutegravir to use as a conscious first choice. Now, if somebody's on those regimens and has become pregnant, and you're four months into the pregnancy and they're still on it, that's a whole other question. But this is starting up de novo. So if you go to the guidelines, they will recommend anything TDF-based, uh, FTC, 3TC based, most of the protease inhibitors, um, and adazanavir is a favorite, and, and, and darunavir is a favorite. Most people don't use latinavir or ritonavir unless they really, really hate their patient. Um, same with zidovudib, right? Um, but for integrase inhibitors, uh, the raltegravir is okay, but not dolutegravir and not TAF yet. And the, the reasons are this, that in TAF, it's been documented that intracellular TDF levels, tenofovir diphosphate, which is the active moiety, is much higher than you get in, um, the, in the mom, in, in the fetus. And nobody knows what that means yet. So until that gets worked out a little bit more, we tend to try to avoid using something with TAF. And similarly for dolutegravir, the good news is they've done all the right teratogenicity studies and whatnot, but there is high percental transfer of dolutegravir relative to other ARVs, and so until that's worked out, um, and also slower neonatal clearance, we don't know what a higher level will do. Now, so far, it looks like dolutegravir at high levels is, is not causing a lot of problems for uh, others, and they've tested higher doses in some of the clinical trials and didn't see any major toxicity, sort of like opposite of what you might see with rolpivirine when they went to higher doses, they saw uh, EKG and uh, shortening QTC. So until this gets worked out, that would be sort of an incorrect answer. Are you committing malpractice? Probably not. But um, when you get this test question on your post-test <coughs> evaluation, you'll kind of remember that. Because the only right answer in that one is the one with the Fovrins. And a lot of people say, wait a minute, a Fovrins was a, was a category D drug. Focus on past tense. It's been removed. So now it's okay to use a Fovrins here um, relative to those other ones. But most people wouldn't choose that. They'd choose some of the other options. Questions or comments from the panel? Okay, so here are the conclusions. There's, there's still debate about elite controllers. The presence of an M184V doesn't affect the initial therapy much, except for perhaps the use of abacavir. The primary secondary MIs equally distributed for the most part. 
Keep that in mind as you're making choices about what to do with therapy. Hold off on TAF or dolutegravir for now in pregnant women. And you don't need to change therapy necessarily if, the, if the, you have low-level persistent viremia, but you sort of are obliged to think it through and work it out and see if there's something going on with the patient and care and so on. So thanks to the panel. Thank you all for participating in this. And um, I think it's, we have more questions for them or just go to lunch. Um, oh, wait, are there some questions? Sorry. We had a lot of them come in as we went, which is great, by the way. That really makes it much more dynamic. So we'll, we'll finish with this one. First-line therapy, if you were in the setting of national guidelines in a resource-limited country. So you guys, all of you, work. Would you, would you do something different in uh, Malawi or <laughs> Tanzania? Or? In Malawi, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Mozambique, even South Africa, uh, in, certainly in the National Health Service program, dolutegravir is not available. So you wouldn't be choosing any dolutegravir-based regimen. Raltegravir is reserved for second-line therapy, so you wouldn't choose a raltegravir-based regimen. So most for most national health programs are still going with an efavirenz-based regimen. They also don't have TAFs. So mm -hmm. uh, efavirenz, tenofovir, and FTC, or tenofovir and 3TC would be the standard regimen. Now, South Africa is kind of the leading edge of resource-constrained settings, and their National Health Service program is rolling out dolutegravir over the next year, I think a lot of the lower-resourced countries in sub-Saharan Africa and other places around the world will not be doing that anytime yeah. soon. So, right. so but you could see where, based on that pricing I showed you, that actually dolutegravir and TAF, uh, once they get approved, will be a relatively inexpensive option. Uh, which I'm sure once it gets out there will be used to find out. I would also argue that we've spent too many years obsessing about $64 versus $68, uh, when in fact there's a lot more to taking care of a patient uh, if the $64 regimen requires another 20 minutes of talking through sleep mm. disorders and troubles like that. Uh, the drug cost is really important, but it is not the driver when you yeah. get down in these range of the overall cost of taking care of a right. patient. Right. Certainly if they're failing more often, developing more resistance, um, needing more monitoring. I think you really have to look at the whole cost and not obsess about a few dollars. Right. I just want to make one quick comment about TAF, because I think we are increasingly looking at TAF and TDF as interchangeable, and that there are some drug-drug interactions, particularly in the realm of TB therapy. So if you're giving rifampin, we actually have not well worked out that drug-drug interaction, and there may be some concerns there. So while we often are like, oh, they're just the same thing, just double check, because there's some issues with PGP with um, TAF. And so if people are being treated with a uh, real um, heavy-duty uh, uh, drug-interacting substances, double-check for your patients on TAF because it's not the same as DDF. Right. So oh, we have a few more minutes here, three more minutes. So I'll, we've got three questions left, so we'll go through those fast. Any comment on use of cobicystat in pregnancy? I was going to ask you that. No, I don't, it's not. <laughs> I'm not aware. Yeah. No, it's but not worked through Not yet. that I've looked at no. it recently, but I'm not aware of any. Yeah, keep your eye on the, on the guidelines, perinatal guidelines, but... Uh, on my last look, it is not listed as a, uh, a drug to use. Frequency that you check viral load for a highly adherent patient with persistently low viremia. So how often do you all check? Every every week, every month, every six months? How what do you, do you know do? they're highly adherent? Yeah, they're highly adherent. How do you know? Well, I mean, every time you check them, they're undetectable. So what we've done... 
Oh, 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 I'm sorry, low level variant. I misread. The, okay, right. So, what do y'all do? I mean, I've, I've got a couple of guys like this where we've gone through the whole thing. I've sent Darunavir levels, like they're mm -hmm. taking their medicines. Um, I had Monica cut their hair. Um, and, and so now, you know like, I'm down to every now. three to six months because it doesn't change. Their right, T cell right. count isn't going down. So it's right. just, this is about me and my anxiety. Yeah. yeah so most people, I think, are following now every six months. And where, where I think there's a big change is for those who are, not for this question, but who have persistent low level, I mean, undetectable virus and their CD4 count goes above 500, why are you checking the CD4 count? I mean, just save the money. You're not going to do anything different. But as long as they stay below, five, below you know, undetectable. But Chip, you want to comment on the... I was just going to say that you, taking a viral load tells them you care about it and you're worried about it, too. And so I think even if you... You're not completely certain about the adherence no matter what they say. So I, I think in folks like that, a little more frequent monitoring uh, makes the point to them that it's something that you're still concerned about and you hope they are, too. That's right. Okay, um, and then the final question is, if the CD4 continues to decline despite viral load suppression, mm -hmm. do you switch to an alternative regimen? This is, it, I think it's mostly not so much decline, but there's a lot of patients who start off like that high viral load, low CD4 count person. You drop their viral load nicely, but their CD4 count doesn't make it to 200 after eight years, right? Or they're stuck at about 100. We all have those patients. So does changing the regimen help that? No, I think in the early days, we all went through a whole series of changing regimens, thinking we are probably missing something. We need to get that CD4 count up. And then there's just, just like the guy with the low-level viremia, there's yeah. a, a whole segment of our patient population who just never gets that dramatic increase in CD4 cells. Right. One thing I would also add, though, is we got used to calibrating our concern about uh, specific infections based on the CD4 cell count relationships in the pre-fully uh, suppressive therapy days when we had virus floating around, which was also uh, making the immune response uh, less robust. So a 200 CD4 cell count person who's suppressed is much, much better off in terms of clinical risk mm -hmm. of infection than somebody 200 CD4 cells in 1989. So. You do the best you can, but I think you have to understand that when you get the virus gone, you've, you've done a lot to help them be more prepared to mount an immune response with activated T cells that aren't going to get knocked off by virus sitting around. And, and that fits in perfectly with the comment we made earlier about iris, that you knock the viral load down in that setting and the immune system becomes a lot more functional and that's the issue. The other thing is if you look carefully at, at some of the studies, especially as to randomized trials, those folks who tend to be like this type of patient that doesn't bump, is what they're missing is that initial big bump, right? So usually people will go up 150 CD4 cells in the first 12 weeks. These guys typically don't get that bump. And then after that, the slope of increase is very similar. So it's like in that first eight weeks, they've missed that bump. And there's various people and various debates about why that bump happens, ranging from um, increased proliferation of T cells to potential distribution of the CD4 positive cells from lymphoid tissue where they were trapped in the middle of inflammation, that inflammation goes away, they kind of, it's almost like demarginalization of white cells with steroids, they go back into the circulation, implying that if that were play, that those folks don't have enough reservoir of CD4 cells left to create the bump. Yes, sir. Ah, <laughs> so that, the question was prophylaxis, and the answer is maybe. 
So <laughs> I, I'll tell you what. No, there's actually there's there data. are data, but it's now being refuted, which makes me a little uncomfortable. Right. So the, there was a CID article in 2011. In fact, I think it's in my slide set towards the end that showed that if somebody's CD4 count goes above 100 and their viral load stays suppressed, and it's that way for a year, you can stop PCP prophylaxis and not have any difference in the incidence of new PCP. Those data, I think, have held up. Toxo recently came out as not being the case there. And so, Toxo recently came out as not being the case there. Um, but I, I, I tend to stop. What do you all do? If, yeah, above 100, below 200, viral load, documented, suppressed for over a year. So thank you very much. I do this sort of series frequently, and this back and forth is as good as it gets. So thank you for your participation. Thanks to the audience. Thanks for coming.